Book Two, Chapters Two and Three of The Fatal Three by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Two The Sins of the Fathers. George Greswold read his wife's letter a second time with increasing perplexity and trouble of mind. Her sister! What could this mean? She had never told him of the existence of a sister. She had been described by her father by everyone as an only child. She had inherited the whole of her father's fortune. Her cruelly used, unacknowledged sister. Those words indicated a social mystery, and as he read and re-read those opening lines of his wife's letter, he remembered her reticence about that girl companion from whom she had been parted so early. He remembered her blushing embarrassment when he questioned her about the girl she called Fay. The girl had been sent to a finishing school at Brussels, and Mildred had seen her no more. His first wife had finished her education at Brussels. She had talked to him often of the fashionable boarding school in the quaint old street near the cathedral, and the slight she had endured there from other girls because of her isolation. There was no stint in the expense of her education. She had as many masters as she cared to have. She was as well-dressed as the richest of her companions. But she was nobody, and belonged to nobody, could give no account of herself that would satisfy those merciless inquisitors. His wife, Vivian Faux, the young English lady whom he had met at Florence. She was traveling in the care of an English artist and his wife who spent their lives on the continent. She submitted to no authority, had ample means, and was thoroughly independent. She did not get on very well with either the artist or his wife. She had a knack of saying disagreeable things and a tongue of exceeding bitterness. A difficult subject, the painter called her, and imparted to his particular friends in confidence that his wife and Miss Faux were always quarrelling. Vivian Faux, that was the name borne by the girl whom he met nineteen years ago at an evening party in Florence, that was the name of the girl he had married, after briefest acquaintance, knowing no more about her than that she had a fortune of thirty thousand pounds when she came of age, and that the trustee and custodian of that fortune was a lawyer in Lincoln's Inn, who affected no authority over her and put no difficulties in the way of her marrying. He remembered now when he first saw Mildred Fawcett something in her fresh young beauty, some indefinable peculiarity of expression or contour, had evolved the image of his dead wife, that image which never recurred to him without keenest pain. He remembered how strange that vague, indescribable resemblance had seemed to him, and how he had asked himself if it had any real existence or were only the outcome of his own troubled mind, reverting involuntarily to an agonizing memory. Her face may come back to me in the faces of other women as it comes back to me in my miserable dreams, he told himself. But as the years went by he became convinced that the likeness was not imaginary. There were points of resemblance. The delicate tracing of the eyebrows, the form of the brow, the way the hair grew above the temples, were curiously alike. He came to accept the likeness as one of those chance resemblances which are common enough in life. It suggested to him nothing more than that. He went to the library, with the letter still in his hand. His lamp was ready lighted, and the September evening being chilly, there was a wood fire in the low hearth, which gave an air of cheerfulness to the sombre room. He rang and told the footman to send Mrs. Bell to him. Bell appeared, erect and severe of aspect as she had been fourteen and twenty years before, neatly dressed in black silk, with braided grey hair and a white lace cap. "'Sit down, Mrs. Bell. I have a good many questions to ask you,' said Greswold, motioning her to a chair on the further side of his desk. 
He was sitting with his eyes fixed, looking at the spot where Mildred had fallen senseless at his feet. He sat for some moments in a reverie, and then turned suddenly, unlocked his desk, and took out the photograph which he had shown Mildred last night. "'Did you ever see that face before, Bell?' he asked, handing her the open case. "'Good gracious, sir, yes, indeed. I should think I did. But Miss Fay was younger than that when she came to Parchment Street.' "'Did you see much of her in Parchment Street?' "'Yes, sir, a good deal, and at the hook, too. "'A good deal more than I wanted to. "'I didn't hold with her being brought into our house, sir. "'Why not? "'I didn't think it was fair to my mistress.' "'But how was it unfair?' "'Well, sir, I don't wish to say anything against the dead, "'and Mr. Fawcett was a liberal master to me, "'and I make no doubt that he died a penitent man.' He was a regular church-goer, and an upright man in all his ways while I lived with him. But right is right, and I shall always maintain that it was a cruel thing to a young wife like Mrs. Fawcett, who doted on the ground he walked upon to bring his natural daughter into the house. Mrs. Bell, do you know that this is a serious accusation you are bringing against a dead man? said George Greswold solemnly. Now, what grounds have you for saying that this girl— with his hand upon the photograph, was Mr. Fawcett's daughter. "'What grounds, sir? I don't want any grounds. I'm not a lawyer to put things in that way, but I know what I know. First and foremost, she was the image of him. And next, why did he bring her home and want her to be made one of the family and treated as a sister by Miss Mildred?' "'She may have been the daughter of a friend.' People don't do that kind of thing. Don't run the risk of making a wife miserable to oblige a friend, retorted Bell scornfully. Besides, I say again, if she wasn't his own flesh and blood, why was she so like him? She may have been the daughter of a near relation. He had but one near relation in the world, his only sister, a young lady who was so difficult to please that she refused no end of good offers and of such a pious turn that she has devoted her life to doing good for the last five-and-twenty years, to my certain knowledge. I hope, sir, you would not insinuate that she had a natural daughter. She may have made a secret marriage, perhaps, known only to her brother. She couldn't have done any such thing without my knowledge, sir. She was a girl at school at the time of Miss Fay's birth. Don't mix Miss Fawcett up in it, pray, sir. Was it you only who suspected Mr. Fawcett to be Miss Fay's father? Only me, sir. Why, it was everybody. And what was worst of all, my poor mistress knew it and fretted over it to her dying day. But you never heard Mr. Fawcett acknowledge the parentage? No, sir, not to me. But I have no doubt he acknowledged it to his poor dear lady. He was an affectionate husband, and he must have been very much wrapped up in that girl or he wouldn't have made his wife unhappy about her. With but the slightest encouragement from Mr. Greswold, Bell expatiated on the subject of Fay's residence in the two houses, and the misery she had wrought there. She unconsciously exaggerated the general conviction about the master's relationship to his protégé, nor did she hint that it was she who first mooted the notion in the Parchment Street household. She left George Greswold with the belief that this relationship had been known for a fact to a great many people, that the tie between protector and protected was an open secret. She dwelt much upon the child Mildred's love for the elder girl, 
which she seemed to think in itself an evidence of their sisterhood. She gave a graphic account of Mildred's illness and described how Fay had watched beside her bed night after night. I saw her sitting there in her nightgown many a times when I went in the middle of the night to see if Mildred was asleep. I never liked Miss Fay, but justice is justice, and I must say, looking back upon all things, said Mrs. Bell with a virtuous air, that there was no deception about her love for Miss Mildred. I may have thought it put on then, but looking back upon it now, I know that it was real. I can quite understand that my wife must have been very fond of such a companion, sister or no sister, but she was so young that no doubt she soon forgot her friend. Memory is not tenacious at seven years old, said Greswold, with an air of quiet thoughtfulness, cutting the leaves of a new book which had lain on his desk, the paper-knife marking the page where he had thrown it down yesterday afternoon. Indeed, she didn't forget, sir. You must not judge Miss Mildred by other girls of seven. She was... She was like Miss Lola, sir. Bell's elderly voice faltered here. She was all love and thoughtfulness. She doted on Miss Fay, and I never saw such grief as she felt when she came back from the seaside and found her gone. It was done for the best, and it was the only thing my mistress could do with any regard for her own self-respect. But even I felt very sorry Miss Fay had been sent away when I saw what a blow it was to Miss Mildred. She didn't get over it for years, and though she was a good and dutiful daughter, I know that she and her mother had words about Miss Fay more than once. She was very fond of her, was she? murmured George Greswold in an absent way, steadily cutting the leaves of his book. Very fond of her. "'And you have no doubt in your own mind, Mrs. Bell, that the two were sisters?' "'Not the least doubt, sir. I never had,' answered Bell resolutely. She waited for him to speak again, but he sat silent, cutting his way slowly through the big volume, without making one jagged edge, so steady was the movement of the hand that grasped the paper-knife. His eyes were bent upon the book. His face was in shadow. "'Is that all, sir?' "'Bell asked at last when she had grown tired of his silence. "'Yes, Mrs. Bell, that will do. Good night.' "'When the door closed upon her, "'he flung the book away from him, sprang to his feet, "'and began to pace the room up and down its length of forty feet "'from hearth to door. "'Sisters, and so fond of each other,' he muttered. "'My God, this is a fatality. "'In this, as in the death of my child, I am helpless.' The wanton neglect of my servants cost me the idol of my heart. It was not my fault, not mine, but I lost her. And now I am again the victim of fatality, blind, impotent, groping in the dark web, caught in the inexorable net. He went back to his desk and reread Mildred's letter in the light of the lamp. She leaves me because our marriage is unholy in her eyes, he said to himself. What will she think when she knows all, as she must know, I suppose, sooner or later? Sooner or later all things are known, says one of the wise ones of the earth. Sooner or later. She is on the track now. Sooner or later she must know everything. He flung himself into a low chair in front of the hearth, and sat with his elbows on his knees, staring at the fire. If it were that question of legality only— he said to himself, 
if it were a question of church law bigotry prejudice i should not fear the issue my love for her and hers for me ought to be stronger than any such prejudice it would need but the first sharp pain of severance to bring her back to me my fond and faithful wife willing to submit her judgment to mine willing to believe as i believe that such marriages are just and holy such bonds pure and true all over the world even though one country may allow and another disallow one colony tie the knot and another loosen it if it were that alone which parts us i should not fear but it is the past the spectral past which rises up to thrust us asunder her sister and they loved each other as david and jonathan loved with the love whose inheritance is a life-long regret chapter three the verdict of her church it was nearly eleven o'clock when mrs greswold arrived at waterloo there had been a half-hour's delay at bishopstoke where she changed trains and the journey had seemed interminable to the overstrained brain of that solitary traveller never before had she so journeyed never during the fourteen years of her married life had she sat behind an engine that was carrying her away from her husband no words could speak that agony of severance or express the gloom of the future stretching before her in one dead level of desolation which was to be spent away from him if i were a roman catholic i would go into a convent to-morrow i would lock myself for ever from the outer world she thought feeling that the world could be nothing to her without her husband and then she began to ponder seriously upon those sisterhoods in which the anglican church is now almost as rich as the roman she thought of those women with whom she had been occasionally brought in contact whom she had been able to help sometimes with her purse and with her sympathy and she knew that when the hour came for her to renounce the world there would be many homes open to receive her many a good work worthy of her labor i am not like those good women she thought the prospect seems to me so dreary i have loved the world too well i love it still even after all that i have lost she had telegraphed to her friend mrs tomkison and that lady was at the terminus with her neat little brougham and with an enthusiastic welcome it is so sweet of you to come to me she exclaimed but i hope it is not any worrying business that has brought you up to town so suddenly papers to sign or anything of that kind mrs tomkison was literary and aesthetic and had the vaguest notions upon all business details she was an ardent champion of women's rights sent mr tomkinson off to the city every morning to earn money for her milliners decorators fads and proteges of every kind and reminded him every evening of his intellectual inferiority she had an idea that women of property were inevitably plundered by their husbands and that it was one of the conditions of their existence to be wheedled into signing away their fortunes for the benefit of spendthrift partners she herself being in the impregnable position of never having brought her husband a sixpence no it is hardly a business matter cecilia i am only in town en passant i am going to my aunt at brighton to-morrow i knew you would give me a night's shelter and it is much nicer to be with you than to go to an hotel the fact was that of the two evils mildred had chosen the lesser she had shrunk from the idea of meeting her lively friend and being subjected to the ordeal of that lady's curiosity but it had seemed still more terrible to her to enter a strange hotel at night and alone she who had never travelled alone who had been so closely guarded by a husband's thoughtful love felt herself helpless as a child in that beginning of widowhood 
I should have thought it simply detestable of you if you had gone to an hotel, protested Cecilia, who affected strong language. We can have a delicious hour of confidential talk. I sent Adam to bed before I came out. He is an excellent devoted creature, has just made what he calls a pot of money on Mexican Street Railways. But he is a dreadful bore when one wants to be alone with one's dearest friend. I have ordered a cosy little supper, a few natives, only just in, a brace of grouse, and a bottle of the only champagne which smart people will hear of nowadays. I am so sorry you troubled about supper, said Mildred, not at all curious about the latest fashion in champagne. I could not take anything unless it were a cup of tea. But you must have dined early or hurriedly at any rate. I hate that kind of dinner. Everything huddled over, and the carriage announced before the pièce de résistance. And so you're going to your aunt. Is she ill? Has she sent for you at a moment's notice? You will come into all her money, no doubt. And I am told she is immensely rich. I have never thought about her money. I suppose not, you lucky creature. It will be sending coals to Newcastle in your case. Your father left you so rich. I am told Miss Fawcett gives no end of money to her church people. She has put in two painted windows at St. Edmund's, a magnificent rose window over the porch, and a window in the south transept by Burne Jones, a delicious design, St. Cecilia sitting at an organ with a cloud of cherubs. By the by, talking of St. Cecilia, how did you like my friend Castellani? He wrote me a dear little note of gratitude for my introduction, so I am sure you were very good to him. I could not dishonor any introduction of yours. Besides, Mr. Castellani's grandfather and my father had been friends. That was a link. He was very obliging in helping us with an amateur concert. How do you like him? But here we are at home. You shall tell me more while we are at supper. Mildred had to sit down to the oysters and grouse, whether she would or not. The dining-room was charming in the daytime with its view of the park. At night it might have been a room excavated from Vesuvian lava, so strictly classic were its terracotta draperies, its butter-boat lamps, and curule chairs. "'How sad to see you unable to eat anything,' protested Mrs. Tomkison, snapping up the natives with gusto, for it may be observed that the people who wait up for travellers or for friends coming home from the play are always hungrier than those who so return. "'You shall have your tea directly.' Mildred had eaten nothing since her apology for her breakfast. She was faint with fasting, but had no appetite, and the odor of grouse, fried breadcrumbs, and gravy sickened her. She withdrew to a chair by the fire, and had a spider-legged tea-table placed at her side, while Mrs. Tomkison demolished one of the birds, talking all the time. "'Isn't he a gifted creature?' she asked, helping herself to the second half of the bird. Mildred almost thought she was speaking of the grouse. "'I mean Castellani,' said Cecilia, in answer to her interrogative look. "'Isn't he a heap of talent? "'You heard him play, of course, and you heard his divine voice. "'When I think of his genius for music and remember that he wrote that book, "'I am actually wonderstruck.' "'The book is clever, no doubt,' answered Mildred thoughtfully, "'almost too clever to be quite sincere. "'And as for genius, well,' I suppose his musical talent does almost reach genius. And yet, what more can one say of Mozart, Beethoven, or Chopin? I think genius is too large a word for any one less than they. But I say he is a genius, cried Mrs. Tomkison, elated by grouse and dry sherry. The champagne had been put aside when Mildred refused it. 
does he not carry one out of oneself by his playing does not his singing open the floodgates of our hard battered old hearts no one ever interested me so much have you known him long for the last three seasons he is with me three or four times a week when he is in town he is like a son of the house and does mr tomkinson like him oh you know adam said cecilia with an expressive shrug you know adam's way he doesn't mind you must always have somebody hanging about you he said so you may as well have that french fool as any one else adam calls all foreigners frenchmen if they are not obtrusively german castellani has been devoted to me and i dare say i may have got myself talked about on his account pursued cecilia with the pious resignation of a blameless matron of five-and-forty who rather likes to be suspected of an intrigue but i can't help that he is one of the few young men i have ever met who understands me and then we are such near neighbours and it is easy for him to run in at any hour you ought to give him a latchkey says adam it would save the servants a lot of trouble yes i remember he lives in queen anne's mansions mildred answered listlessly he has a suite of rooms near the top looking over half london and exquisitely furnished he gives afternoon tea to a few chosen friends who don't mind the lift and we've had a materialization in his rooms but it wasn't a particularly good one added mrs tomkison as if she were talking of something to eat the maid louisa arrived at queen anne's gate a little before luncheon on the following day she brought a considerable portion of mrs greswold's belongings in two large basket trunks a portmanteau and a dressing-bag these were at once sent on to victoria in the cab that had brought the young person and the luggage from waterloo while the young person herself was accommodated with dinner table-beer and gossip in the housekeeper's room she also brought a letter for her mistress a letter written by george greswold late on the night before mildred could hardly tear open the envelope for the trembling of her hands how would he write to her would he plead against her decision would he try to make her waver would he set love against law in such irresistible words as love alone can use she knew her own weakness and his strength and she opened his letter full of fear for her own resolution but there was no passionate pleading the letter was measured almost to coldness i need not say that your departure together with your explanation of that departure has come upon me as a crushing blow your reasons in your own mind are doubtless unanswerable i cannot even endeavour to gainsay them i could only seem to you as a special pleader making the worse appear the better reason for my own selfish ends you know my opinion upon this hard-fought question of marriage with a deceased wife's sister and you know how widely it differs from mr cancellor's view and yours which to my mind is the view of the bigot and not the christian there is no word in christ's teachings to forbid such marriages your friend and master clement cancellor is of the school which sets the law-making of a medieval church above the wisdom of christ am i to lose my wife because mr cancellor is a better christian than his master but granted that you are fixed in this way of thinking that you deem it your duty to break your husband's heart and make his home desolate rather than tolerate the idea of union with one who was once married to your half-sister let me ask you at least to consider whether you have sufficient ground for believing that my first wife was verily your father's daughter in the first place your only evidence of the identity between my wife and the girl you call fay consists of a photograph which bears a striking likeness to the girl you knew 
a likeness which i am bound to say bell saw as instantly as you yourself had seen it remember that the strongest resemblances have been found between those who were of no kin to each other and that more than one judicial murder has been committed on the strength of just such a likeness the main point at issue however is not so much the question of identity as the question whether the girl fay was actually your father's daughter and from my interrogation of bell it appears to me that the evidence against your father in this matter is one of impressions only and even as circumstantial evidence too feeble to establish any case against the accused is it impossible for a man to be interested in an orphan girl and to be anxious to establish her in his own home as a companion for his only child unless that so-called orphan were his own daughter the offspring of a hidden intrigue there may be stronger evidence as to fay's parentage than the suspicions of servants or your mother's jealousy but as yet i have arrived at none you possibly may know much more than bell knows more than your letter implies if it is not so if you are acting on casual suspicions only i can but say that you are prompt to strike a man whose heart has been sorely tried of late and who had a special claim upon your tenderness by reason of that recent loss i can write no more mildred my heart is too heavy for many words i do not reproach you i only ask you to consider what you are doing before you make our parting irrevocable you have entreated me not to follow you and i will obey you so far as to give you time for reflection before i force myself upon your presence but i must see you before you leave england i ask no answer to this letter until we meet your unhappy husband george greswold the letter chilled her by its calm logic its absence of passion there seemed very little of the lover left in a husband who could so write his contempt for a law which to her was sacred shocked her almost as if it had been an open declaration of infidelity his sneer at clement cancellor wounded her to the quick she answered her husband's letter immediately alas my beloved she wrote my reason for believing fay to have been my sister is unanswerable my mother on her deathbed told me of the relationship told me the sad secret with bitter tears her knowledge of that story had cast a shadow on the latter years of her married life i had seen her unhappy without knowing the cause on her deathbed she confided in me i was almost a woman then and old enough to understand what she told me women are so jealous when they love george i suffered many a sharp pang after my discovery of your previous marriage jealous of that unknown rival who had gone before me little dreaming that fatal marriage was to cancel my own my mother's evidence is indisputable she must have known as i grew older i saw that there was that in my father's manner when fay was mentioned which indicated some painful secret the time came when i was careful to avoid the slightest allusion to my lost sister but in my own mind and in my own heart i cherished her image as the image of a sister i am grieved that you should despise mr cancellor and his opinions my religious education was derived entirely from him my father and mother were both careless though neither was unbelieving he taught me to care for spiritual things he taught me to look to a better life than the best we can lead here and in this dark hour i thank and bless him for having so taught me what should i be now adrift on a sea of trouble without the compass of faith i will steer by that george even though it carry me away from him i shall always devotedly love ever in severance as in union your own mildred 
she had written to Mr. Cancellor early that morning, asking him to call upon her before three o'clock. He was announced a few minutes after she finished her letter, and she went to the drawing-room to receive him. His rusty black coat and slouched hat, crumpled carelessly in his ungloved hand, looked curiously out of harmony with Mrs. Tompkinson's drawing-room, which was the passion of her life, the shrine to which she carried gold and frankincense and myrrh in the shape of rose du Barry and bleu du roi sèvres veritable old Sheraton tables and chairs, and commodes and cabinets from the boudoir of Marie-Antoinette, a lady who must assuredly have sat at more tables and written at more escritoire than any other woman in the world. Give Her Majesty only five minutes for every table and ten for every bonheur du jour attributed to her possession, and her married life must have been a good deal longer than the span which she was granted of joy and grief between the passing of the ring and the fall of the axe. Unsightly as that dark figure showed amidst the delicate tertiaries of Lyon's brocade and the bright colouring of satinwood tables and Sèvres porcelain, Mr. Cancellor was perfectly at his ease in Mrs. Tompkinson's drawing-room. He wasted very few of his hours in such rooms, albeit there were many such in which his presence was courted. But seldom as he appeared amid such surroundings he was never disconcerted by them. He was not easily impressed by externals. The filth and squalor of a London slum troubled him no more than the artistic intricacies of a West End drawing-room, in which the cult of beauty left him no room to put down his hat. It was humanity for which he cared, persons, not things. His soul went straight to the souls he was anxious to save. He was narrow, perhaps, but in that narrowness there was a concentrative power that could work wonders. One glance at Mildred's face showed him that she was distressed and that her trouble was no small thing. He held her hand in his long, lean fingers and looked at her earnestly as he said, "'You have something to tell me, some sorrow?' "'Yes,' she answered, "'an incurable sorrow.' She burst into tears, the first she had shed since she left her home, and sobbed passionately for some moments, leaning against the trion and spinet, raining her tears upon the vernis martin in a way that would have made Mrs. Tompkinson's blood run cold. "'How weak I am!' she said impatiently as she dried her eyes and choked back her sobs. "'I thought I was accustomed to my sorrow by this time. God knows it is no new thing. It seems a century old already.' "'Sit down and tell me all about it,' said Clement Cancellor, quietly drawing forward a chair for her and then seating himself by her side. "'I cannot help you till you have told me all your trouble, and you know I shall help you if I can. I can sympathize with you in any case.' "'Yes, I am sure of that,' she answered sadly, and then, falteringly but clearly, she told him the whole story, from its beginning in the days of her childhood till the end yesterday.' She held back nothing, she spared no one. Freely, as to her father confessor, she told all. I have left him for ever, she concluded. Have I done right? Yes, you have done right. Anything less than that would have been less than right. If you are sure of your facts as to the relationship, if Mr. Greswold's first wife was your father's daughter, then there was no other course open to you. There was no alternative. "'And my marriage is invalid in law?' questioned Mildred. "'I do not think so. Law does not always mean justice. If this young lady was your father's natural daughter, she had no status in the eye of the law. She was not your sister. She belonged to no one in the eye of the law. She had no right to bear your father's name. So, if you accept the civil law for your guide, 
you may still be George Greswold's wife. You may ignore the tie between you and his first wife. Legally, it has no existence. Mildred crimsoned and then grew deadly pale. In the eye of the law, her marriage was valid. She was not a dishonored woman, a wife and no wife. She might still stand by her husband's side, go down to the grave as his companion and sweetheart. They who so short a time ago were wedded lovers might be lovers again, all clouds dispersed, the sunshine of domestic peace upon their pathway, if she were content to be guided by the law. Should you think me justified if I were to accept my legal position and shut my eyes to all the rest? She asked, knowing but too well what the answer would be. Should I so think? Oh, Mildred, do you know me so little that you need ask such a question? When have I ever taken the law for my guide? Have I not defied that law when it stood between me and my faith? Am I not ready to defy it again were the choice between conscience and law forced upon me? To my mind, your half-sister's position makes not one jot of difference. She was not the less your sister because of her parents' sin, and your marriage with the man who was her husband is not the less an incestuous marriage. The word struck Mildred like a whip, stung the wounded heart like a sharp cut of a lash. Not one word more, she cried, holding up her hands as if to ward off a blow. If my union with my very dear husband was a sinful union, I was an unconscious sinner. The bond is broken for ever. I shall sin no more. Her tears came again, but this time they gathered slowly on the heavy lids and rolled slowly down the pale cheeks, while she sat with her eyes fixed, looking straight before her, in dumb despair. Be sure all will be well with you if you cleave to the right, said the priest with grave tenderness, feeling for her as acutely as an ascetic can feel for the grief that springs from earthly passions and temporal loves, sympathizing as a mother sympathizes with a child that sobs over a broken toy. The toy is a futile thing, but to the child, priceless. What are you going to do with your life? he asked gently, after a long pause in which he had given her time to recover her self-possession. I hardly know. I shall go to the Tyrol next month, I think, and choose some out-of-the-way nook where I can live quietly, and then for the winter I may go to Italy or the south of France. A year hence, perhaps, I may enter a sisterhood, but I do not want to take such a step hurriedly. No, not hurriedly, said Mr. Cancellor, his face lighting up suddenly as that pale, thin, irregular-featured face could lighten with the divine radiance from within. Not hurriedly, not too soon but I feel assured that it would be a good thing for you to do, the sovereign cure for a broken life. You think now that happiness would be impossible for you, anywhere, anyhow. Believe me, my dear Mildred, you would find it in doing good to others. A vulgar remedy, an old woman's recipe, perhaps, but infallible. A life lived for the good of others is always a happy life. You know the glory of the sky at sunset, there is nothing like it, no such splendor, no such beauty. And yet it is only a reflected light. So it is with the human heart, Mildred. The sun of individual love has sunk below life's horizon, but the reflected glory of the Christian's love for sinners brightens that horizon with a far lovelier light. If I could feel like you, if I were as unselfish as you, faltered Mildred. You have seen Louise Hillersdon? 
a frivolous pleasure-loving woman you think perhaps one who was once an abject sinner whom you are tempted to despise i have seen that woman kneeling by the bed of death i have seen her ministering with unflinching courage to the sufferers from the most loathsome diseases humanity knows and i firmly believe that those hours of unselfish love have been the brightest spots in her checkered life believe me mildred self-sacrifice is the shortest road to happiness no i would not urge you to make your election hurriedly give yourself leisure for thought and prayer and then if you decide on devoting your life to good works command my help my counsel all that is mine to give i know i know that i have a sure friend in you and that under heaven i have no better friend she answered quietly glancing at the clock as she spoke i am going to brighton this afternoon to spend a few days with my aunt and to tell her what has happened she must know all about fay if there is any room for doubt she will tell me my last hope is there End of chapters 2 and 3